We'll turn our hearts over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And uh, we're going to continue in our study of the, the book of Romans. There's a... Uh, uh, I'm going to read the, the text for us, Romans 1 to 7, and we've already covered verses 1 to 4, but I just want you to understand this is one long sentence that Paul opens up this letter with, and it just is, it's just kind of continuous. And so he writes there in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The one thing that is is kind of interesting when you stop and you think of the, the, the book of Romans, that this was a letter, just like you would write a letter. That's what Paul wrote to these believers in Rome. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. We look at it as a book, and we study it as a book, but it's also important to remember that it is a letter. It's some, a personal letter that he wrote uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he really has in mind here today, I think in our, our text, verses specifically 5 through 7, um, it's God's great gospel basically demonstrated. How does it play out? Last week we defined the gospel in different ways, and, and today we want to look at uh, how it is demonstrated. Um, I'm reminded of a, a story, illustration. It talks about three men, and these three men were working on a uh, stone pile at this big construction site. And uh, somebody who was walking by the stone pile saw the three guys working there, and he was kind of curious what they were doing. And he asked the first guy, you know, what are you doing? And he kind of just smartly replied, I'm chiseling stone. And hoping for a better answer, he made his way to the next guy, and he asked him, the second worker, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just feeding my family. I'm bringing home a paycheck. Kind of irritated, the guy would even ask. And still wondering what actually they were building, what they were doing, he asked the third man, Sir, what are you doing? And the illustration says the man dropped his sledgehammer, dropped his chisel. He stood up, and his face kind of brightened. And he waved toward over the whole construction site. And he exclaimed, I'm building a great cathedral. See, all three of these guys were doing the exact same job. But only the third really had the the proper, you might say, vision to make his job worth doing, to make his job meaningful, to really cause him to put his heart into it. He understood what it was all about. And I think sometimes when it comes to the church, when it comes to ministry, um, we forget what it's all about. We have a tendency, you know, well, what are you doing for the Lord? How are you serving the Lord? We bring that down to the kind of small little things that we do. Not that they're not important. They are. Maybe it's, hey, I clean the fellowship hall. 
I am a greeter on Sunday mornings. I teach Sunday school. I lead a small group Bible study. I help out in women's ministry. I help out in the sound booth. I I help out in nursery or finance or whatever it might be. And we forget so many times that there's a bigger perspective at large. And I think the bigger perspective would be, you know what? God has saved me and he's using me to help build his church and to be a channel, his channel, for taking the gospel to the nations. That's really what ministry is about. It's not just about, you know, teaching a Sunday school class or cleaning up the fellowship hall or helping in finance or helping in the nursery. I mean, all those are wonderful things, and we appreciate you serving. But let's look at it as a bigger picture. I mean, this is just one little small church on a corner here in Redwood City. What's the bigger picture? See, that's what the Apostle Paul's perspective was. He truly saw the bigger picture, and we can see that here in verses 1 to 7. He understood that God saved him from being a persecutor of the church. And he knows that God graciously called him to be an apostle, to extraordinarily help lay the foundation of a much bigger project, of a worldwide church, which Christ himself promises to build. See, God was using Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles or to the nations. And he was using him for his namesake. He wasn't using Paul just to get Paul a big name and go on the circuit and tell his wonderful testimony. No. I mean, that's what we do so many times. You know, some movie star or some actor comes to Christ, and pretty soon they're making the rounds in the churches telling their... And, you know, not that their testimony is not legit or whatever. I mean, they may have been gloriously saved. But so many times it's about them. And while none of us today here are called as apostles in the same sense that Paul was, and we're going to be looking at that, the principle still applies. The simple principle is that God saves us and gives us spiritual gifts, beloved, so that we will be used by him, his channels for the gospel, to go out, not just here, but to all the nations. And that's what Paul is describing here. And the interesting thing is God calls us to that, but he also gives us everything we need to accomplish the task. We had some, we had some work going on at Jeddard. We're trying to get this rear porch done. It was kind of caving in, and it was wood, and there was uneven cement. So we had some guys come by, and they dug it up the other day, and getting it ready, they're going to pour some concrete But it was interesting because the guy who was the contractor guy, he came by and dropped off his crew. And I guess one of the workers forgot half his tools (laughs) because he kept on knocking on my door. Hey, do you have this? Do you have that? Do you have a drill? I'm like, man, he kept on apologizing. Nice guy. He's a Christian man, actually. And and I thought, oh, yeah, I can help you out. So I gave him some tools, and he didn't need them anyway. His boss came back and dropped off the, the box that he needed. But it was, I could see the frustration on his face when he was given a job to do, and he didn't even have a shovel. You know, I mean, he, he was really frustrated that he had to come and ask me to, to get the tools to accomplish his, his job. And you know what? God doesn't do that to us. 
He calls us, and he calls us to be his children. He calls us to be servants and calls us to be used for the glory of the gospel. But he also says, hey, you know what? Here's everything you need to be equipped to do that. I don't know about you, but that's a blessing. There's nothing more frustrating than starting a project and not having the right tools to complete the project or not having the proper instructions or not having the proper understanding of where, where it's going. Well, God has given us far beyond what we would even need or comprehend to need. The treasures that God has given us is described throughout the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul said this, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. I mean, God doesn't just save us and then step back and say, okay, you're on your own now, pal. Hope you make it to heaven. No. He's right there beside us. He's equipping us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. And so many times we take these things for granted. The psalm speaks of a faithfulness that will never be removed. John 3.16 tells us that we have a life that will never end. A spring that will never cease to bubble up. John 4. A gift that will never be lost. Romans 8, a chain that will never be broken. Romans 8, a love that we can never be separated from. See, all these things are blessings. That God has given us a calling that can never be revoked. A foundation that will never be be destroyed at all. And an inheritance that will never fade away, 1 Peter tells us. All those things, Paul understood that God has equipped him and blessed him with that kind of inheritance in Christ. Well, just real quick, where have we been? We we looked at verse 1 and we talked about the preacher of the good news. Paul, he was a servant, he was an apostle, and he was set apart for Jesus Christ. And then we looked at the promise of the good news. And we looked at how verse 2 tells us that, hey, this was not something new. This is something that was promised beforehand. And we understood that it talked about his name, his sonship, the mere fact that, that Jesus Christ has always been God. But when he came and he became incarnate, he took on the role of being God's son. I just want to take a few moments to clarify some statements I made last week concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, Here in the context, Paul is referring to, basically, he wants us to understand that we need to believe and accept the truth that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, Uh, that he came from God, that he lived here among us, that he took on a body, that he was the God-man for 30-some years. And it was at that time that he became a human being that Paul says that he was declared the Son of God. And even though this plan was birthed in all eternity past, the title of Son is really an incarnational term. It applies to Jesus in its fullness after he puts on a human body. He has always been the Son of God, and in the sense of oneness with the Father, and the second person of the 
Trinity, that is very true. No question that he is eternally God, that he is eternally the second person of the Trinity. We're not disputing that. But Paul says here that he was declared God's son when he was supernaturally conceived in Mary and then he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So just to clarify, we want to say that Christ was the son of God and is the son of God from all eternity past in expectation and that he now is declared God's son in fulfillment of the incarnation And that's through all eternity future. And we looked at his birth, and we looked at his resurrection, and we got through basically the end of verse 4 there last week. We talked about the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And see, it's it's important for us to understand here today that as we get into verse 5, and we begin to understand who Christ was. Um, See, Christ, when he was was baptized, that's when his, basically his public confirmation of his ministry by God, by the Father, by the Holy Spirit. From that time on, from his baptism on, Christ's ministry was controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was subjected to the will of God, his Father. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it's going to be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. See, we, we can never forget, beloved, that Jesus Christ was both a man and God. Both. And that's, that verse there points that out. It says, hey, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, the divine nature of Christ, the power that's working in Christ to do these miracles, that's not going to be forgiven. But you can say whatever you want against the Son of Man, that's going to be forgiven you. Against the human man, Jesus Christ. Some people have a lot of questions about the we look at that verse in Matthew 12 and we say, well, that's the unpardonable sin. You know, if you do that, you can never be forgiven. And what does that mean? I take it rather literally. There's some people that don't, but I take it rather literally. I think, I would, I would be honest and say, out of Matthew 12, the text that it speaks of as far as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that can't be duplicated today. And you say, well, why not? Because Jesus isn't here physically. See, when you put yourself in the context of Matthew and the Gospels, when it talks about this, what happens is Jesus was going around doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they couldn't deny the miracles. The miracles were happening, and Christ was the one who was doing them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he did those miracles, the religious leaders were so blind and so hard-hearted that they pointed to Jesus Christ and said, well, we're not going to deny that you're doing the miracles. Yeah, you're raising people from the dead, and you're healing people, and, and you're doing all these feeding people without food. All this stuff is, is truly miraculous. But we don't believe you're doing it by the power of God. We believe you're doing it by the power of Satan. 
They literally attributed the works of Christ, the literal works of Christ while he was here on earth, to Satan himself, the power of Satan. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? If you're seeing all the miracles I'm doing, and you're not denying that, but you're still so hard-hearted that you cannot admit that this is a divine miracle, that it's something that is from God, there's no more hope for you. There's no more hope. You're not going to find forgiveness anywhere else. If you're coming to Christ and you're saying, well, I believe you're doing the miracles, but you're doing them by the power of Satan, you're not going to look to that person for salvation. You're not going to definitely not believe that he's the Messiah. And so today, can that be duplicated? Well, Jesus isn't here. You know, it's not like we can go down to the park and see Jesus walking around performing miracles and point to Jesus and go, wow, you do that by the power of Satan. That would be the context in which this is taken out of. They had a full physical revelation about Jesus Christ, and yet they still attributed his work to Satan. And some people say, well, the unpardonable sin, that's unbelief. Well, I I guess it is. But even unbelief can be forgiven. We were all at a point of unbelief, right? And we came to Christ, he forgave us. So, but I think if you die in your sins, obviously, you will be met out the judgment of hell in the judgment of God, the wrath of God, due to the sins that, that, you're, that are attributed to you on your account. The only way they can be forgiven is through Christ. And so we see this dynamic throughout Scripture that points to Jesus as man, but also as God. And you can see different times where that actually plays itself out. But I think it's important for us to remember that God, in his kind of divine revelation to us, in verse 5, we see, you know what? Yeah, this was through my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was filled with the Spirit and he was doing my will. But I want you to understand that there's a, a provision through this good news. In verse 5, he says, through whom we receive grace and apostleship. What does the gospel provide? What does the good news provide? It provides grace and it apro- provides apostleship. Well, let's look at that first point, grace from Christ. Every believer receives grace from God as a result of responding to the gospel, to the good news. If you don't respond to the gospel, if you don't embrace Christ, then you're not going to receive the grace of God. He's saying here that, you know what? The good news is that salvation is by what? Grace. It's by grace. I mean, the gospel would not be good news if somehow it wasn't through grace. If the gospel message was, hey, you can be saved, but you know what? In order to be saved, here's what you have to do. And they start ticking off the to-do list. All these religious things you have to do. That wouldn't be good news to me. It's like, you know, you get those phone calls once in a while or you get an email saying, hey, you've won. (laughs) Free trip to the Bahamas and all expenses paid. You're like, yeah, whatever. You know, you call those things and you you reply to those things one time usually. And you, you learn 
There's no free lunch. Well, yeah, it is free, but, you know, it's, you know, and then they start unraveling the thing, and, you know, pretty soon the, the, the dollars are in the hundreds, and you're going, well, wait a minute, what, what happened here? That's not how God works. Grace is unmerited favor. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we know these verses so well, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, the grace of God that brings salvation, Scripture tells us in Titus, has appeared to all men. It's totally apart from anything man could ever do to receive God's favor. It's unmerited favor. And that includes his mercy, his loving kindness. It grants us that salvation, and it grants us salvation as a gift, not something we earn. All we do is simply respond by believing in his Son, believing in Christ, putting our faith and trust in him. John 3.24 says, Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 27, he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No. But by the law of what? Faith. The only way we're going to get into the kingdom of God is by the grace of God. There's no place for human achievement. There's no, there's no place for pats on the backs when it comes to the kingdom of God. We're not going to be up there, high five, man, how did you make it? Oh, I helped, I did this, I, I gave to the church. No. Matter of fact, we're probably going to get to heaven and look around and go, whoa, how did you get here? <laughs> You're the last person I'm thinking would be here. It's unmerited favor. But it's also important that we understand it's undeserved favor. There's none of us that deserves heaven. Salvation doesn't come by confirmation or communion or baptism or church membership or church attendance or even trying to keep the Ten Commandments or, or trying to live out Jesus' words on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't come by how much you give to charity. It doesn't come by believing that there's a God. It doesn't come by being moral or respectable or having character, none of those things will bring you salvation. Those things are not bad in and of themselves, but they're not going to bring you salvation. You know what, I'd even say salvation doesn't even come by claiming to be a Christian. That doesn't bring you salvation. There's a lot of people in the world, and even in the church today, beloved, that claim Christ. They say they're a Christian. The minute they walk out these doors, wow, they become a chameleon or something else. Salvation comes only when we receive by faith the gift of God's grace. Hell will be full of people who tried to get to heaven any other way. And the good thing is, in Romans, we're going to look at this a little later, coming months, Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, he says, Paul says, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, what? Grace did abound much more. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the first provision of the gospel is grace. And it's not earned and it's not deserved. 
I would say you couldn't even earn it if you wanted to. You couldn't do enough good works to add up to being the positive. God has swooped down and he, he came down through the, the Lord Jesus Christ to give us the grace of God, even though we don't deserve it. One dying saint said this, Grace is the only thing that can make us like God. I might be dragged through heaven, earth, and hell, and I would still be the same sinful, polluted wretch unless God himself could cleanse me by his grace. Grace is a free gift to us from God. Well, what else does it provide? Not just grace. The gospel just not only provides grace, but I think it also provides us a way to serve the king. It also says there in verse 5 that we have received grace and, what's it say? Apostleship. We have received apostleship. Service to the king. Now, some people say, well, he's just referring to the 12 apostles and and nobody else. Well, you have to understand that word in its broad sense, but also in its restrictive sense. In the broad sense, that word apostle, the gospel not only brings grace of salvation, but it brings the task of apostleship. What is apostleship? What was an apostle? Apostle was someone who was sent out to preach the good news to others. Matter of fact, Jesus is called an apostle. Hebrews 3.11, or 3.1, it says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. He was sent. The term apostle must be seen in a wider scheme here because Jesus Christ himself is an apostle. He was sent from the Father. And in the broadest sense, it really refers to anybody who is sent as a gospel messenger. Anyone who is sent on a spiritual mission. We're called and we're saved to be sent to reach the world. That's that's the purpose. Paul is saying that there's not only grace of salvation, but there's also the challenge of being sent. Both Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles. And Barnabas wasn't one of the twelve, nor was he equivalent to Paul. But he was still one who was sent. Well, we understand it in the broad sense, but we also have to understand it in a unique sense. Because there's people in the church today that claim that they are apostles, capital A. Like an extension of the twelve. I mean, Paul's apostleship was very unique. There was no other apostle like him. He had a special call from God. But we looked at a couple weeks ago what was required to be one of that original group of apostles. You had to have a personal call by Christ. That's why it was so important that Christ come down personally and meet Saul on the road to Damascus and call him and to serve him to be an apostle because he saw the risen Christ. You had to be called by Christ. You had to see the risen Christ. You had to have miracles and and signs gifted to you through the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's true that all true believers are sent ones, 
in the, the generic sense. But not all believers are apostles in the first century sense, in the founding of the church sense. But don't ever forget that every believer is called to reach the world for Christ. How you do that, that's how God gifts us and calls us and equips us. I often say that Christianity is not a, a, for spectators. It's not for spectators. You should be serving Christ somehow, some way, with how he's gifted you. The Lord doesn't place you on his team just to allow you to sit on the bench every week. He intends to send you into the game. He, he wants to use you. He's created you. He knows what makes you tick. He knows the gifts, the abilities that you, you have. And he wants you to use them for his glory. I mean, have you ever thought about serving Christ? What a high calling that is. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. Paul's writing this. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. Listen. Created in Christ Jesus onto good works. Which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. He already prepared them for us. I think that's just, just amazing. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk a walk worthy of the vocation to which you were called. See, there's something about becoming a Christian that, that, that it's, it's a much higher um, standard of living. And I think that it's important that we, we realize that and we begin to question ourselves, well, how is God using me? How has God gifted me? How could I be used in the church for his glory? So many times when you enter into ministry, you're ordained into the ministry, a group of, of elders or older men in Christ come around you and affirm that well, we see the giftings and the callings and the call of God upon your life and as, as, as men who are already in the ministry, we want, we want to bless you and, and affirm you in the ministry. And I mean, that's a nice thing to go through. But it's, 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 it's something that we have created. <laughs> I mean, it speaks of Men laying hands on Timothy and, you know, this, this kind of a thing. But, but as far as this, this idea that, well, you have to be ordained. Beloved, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are ordained. You're ordained by the Most High God to do exactly what he's called you to do. So we see the way that God provides for us. He wants us to be involved. He, he wants us to serve him through the grace and apostleship that he's given to us. But look also here, he talks about the proclamation of the good news. He says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. To proclaim the good news for the obedience to the faith among all nations. Paul is saying here that you've been called to Christ. And because you've been called to Christ, you should go out 
And you should call others to Christ. That's the picture. I mean, the good news concerning Jesus Christ leads us to proclaim the same good news to everybody else we come across. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to give our testimony. How Christ has saved us. It's not, you don't give a testimony just to build yourself up. Sometimes you hear some testimonies and you begin, you begin to wonder, well, where, 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 when are they going to get to the, the, the God-honoring part? You know, they talk about how bad they were and how they did all the stuff. And, and I mean, that's great to give it perspective. But I've heard some testimonies, that's all they talk about. Yeah, I was a bad dude, man. I had this, I had money, I had women. I had, uh, 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 and they go on and on and on and on and on and on. And then I got saved, praise the Lord. And they sit down. It's like, wait a minute. You just gave glory to all of your past sins, and then, hey, God saved you, sit down. I mean, that, your testimony should have part of that, so that you under, people understand, well, what were you saved from? But it should also deal with the present, that, that God is working in your life every day, and it should deal with the future. This is the vision that God has given me, or this is the calling that God has given me. I challenge you, if you've never sat down with a piece of paper and wrote out your testimony, it's a great exercise to do. Even if you've been saved for 50 years, go back and, and, and think about how you were saved and, and how would I tell somebody if I had five minutes the gospel, how would I relate to them? The easiest way to do it is share your testimony. If you sit down and you write your testimony out, boy, you've done it. You can look at it and you can criticize it and you can go back and, well, I don't know if I want to put that in there or maybe I'll take that out or whatever. And you get it down to, to it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that you can tell. And it's real because it's changed your life. Well, man is designed, it says here, for obedience to Christ. Look at verse 5. It says to bring about the obedience of what? Faith. The obedience of faith. Paul said the same thing all the way at the end of the book in Romans chapter 16, according, verse 26, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all the nations for the obedience of faith. What is the obedience of faith? What's that saying? It's, it's basically, Paul wants us to understand that if we're saying we have faith and we have faith in Christ, it will result in obedience. The result of faith is always obedience. One commentator said, show me someone who says he believes in Christ and lives a life of total disobedience, and I'll show you somebody who's not redeemed. I used to tell kids in the youth group, look, it's great you go to camp, and it's great you get saved again, and, you know, you come back and you're on, you know, spiritual zone way up here, and you're, you're going to conquer the world for Christ. That's great. But let me share with you one thing. I'd always say, you know what? No Jesus, no change. No change, no Jesus. You want to tell me you're a Christian? You want to tell me that you've come to Christ? Well, what change has he made in your life? What changes is he making now? That, that's an ongoing thing. We're called to become more and more and more like Christ each and every day. It's not just a, a one time, I did it, that's it, move on, something else. What, what else can I do now? No. That's not the way Christianity operates. Our faith demands obedience. That's why there's different kinds of faith. There's dead faith and there's obedient faith. 
Faith, if it doesn't manifest itself in ways that we become obedient, is dead. James chapter 2, verse 20 says, Well, you know, O vain man, that faith without works is what? Is dead. It doesn't say faith without faith means you have no faith. No, it says there's a faith, but there's a dead faith. You can have faith, but it can be a dead faith. That's why we're not saved by works. We're saved on two works. Christianity is a call for people to be obedient to the faith. When you put your faith, your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you affirm your obedience to Him. You're saying, now I, I have a new Lord. I have, I have someone now that I'm accountable to. And I, I'm going to be interested in finding out what He wants me to do because I want to do it. It's like when you get a new job. And you, you go into a new job and you figure out, okay, okay, who's my boss? Who's the, his boss? And you got the whole you know, thing worked out. You'd be a fool to go in there and say, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what my boss thinks. I don't care what his boss thinks. I'm just going to do my own thing. You won't be there very long. That'd be foolish. No, you want to you have some sense of, of kind of team. You, you want to please the guy that's over you. You want to do a good job. So that he comes to you and says, hey, great job. That's good. When we come to Christ... We can't just say, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I trust you as my Savior, and now I'm just going to go do my own thing. That's not biblical. The gospel message tells us in Matthew 28, verse 20, that we need to go out into the world and we need to make disciples and we need to teach them, what's it say? To observe, right, all things whatsoever I commanded you. Christians say, oh yeah, come to me as your Savior, and then you can go do whatever you want. That's not what he said. And yet, so many times, I think that's how we treat salvation. You know, it's refreshing sometimes. This may be hard for you to understand, but it's refreshing sometimes when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. And rather than them just going, oh, praise the Lord, yeah, how do I pray, what do I do, you know, yeah, yeah, let me sign on the line, oh, I'm a Christian now. It's so refreshing to talk to somebody and say, wow, that's, that's a pretty... That's a pretty uh, heavy commitment. I mean, that's, I'm going to have to think about this. I say yes when I hear that. Go think about it. Consider it. Because I know God's working in their heart. And they're not just going to settle for a dead faith. They want something that's real. If they're going to follow Christ, they want to make sure that it's real. That it's really going to do what it says it's going to do. Unfortunately, that's not the message people are hearing today. We must call people to faith, beloved, but to a faith that obeys the word of God. It's not a faith to just do your own thing. And I would say people that say they believe and yet they live their own life according to their own plan and their own their own desires, and they're living in the life of disobedience, I would say they don't have genuine saving faith. Because people who believe in Christ and follow Him will obey Him. 
And that's the second kind of faith, obedient faith. See, it's not that faith plus obedience equals salvation. That's not what we're saying. But obedient faith equals salvation. True faith is always verified by one's obedience to God. I mean, that's why he is called Jesus Christ, the what? The Lord. Paul said to the Roman Christians, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout all the world. It says that in verse 8. Why was their faith spoken out about for others throughout all the world? It tells us in, in Romans 16, 9, your obedience is come abroad unto all men. Their faith was an obedient faith. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a faith and not be obedient. The Bible teaches that someone who lives a life of absolute disobedience cannot, cannot be a Christian because they do not recognize the Lordship of Christ. I don't know what you believe, but you don't come to Jesus piecemeal. Either you come bearing everything and bringing everything you got, or you don't come at all. You can't come to Jesus just for the saving part and then say, well, I'll I'll deal with the obedience later. I'll, I'll, I'll make him Lord later when I'm a little more mature. No, it doesn't work that way. When you come to Christ, you come to him as Savior and Lord. Romans 10 tells us in verse 9, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You'll be saved. And then it says this, and this is so important that we include this verse, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, faith without obedience won't save anybody. Matter of fact, it's a fraud. It's, it's a Ponzi scheme. It, it basically takes a bunch of people on the broad way, the path of destruction. Read Romans 7, right? There's going to be a lot of people that stand before Jesus one day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Haven't we, you know, list of all these different miracles and everything that they've done? Good things. And he says, no, sorry, I don't even know who you are. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, speaks of holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Earlier I said, no no Jesus, no change, no change, no Jesus. Well, think of it this way, no holiness, no heaven. And your holiness isn't always dependent on simply what you do. It's a position, but it also has a practical way that we live it out as well. Well, he goes on here, and he basically tells us that we're designed to obey Christ, but we're also designed for evangelism. It's our calling. It's designated to us. He says in verse 6, 
including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Do you know that we have been called? Believers have been called to faith in Christ. You don't just wake up one day and just arrive there. We have come out of a life of, the Bible says, disobedience into a life of obedience. From unbelief into faith. And because we've been called ourselves, we're obliged, the Bible says, that we should be calling others to Christ. There's a lot of people that look at the idea of being called and and chosen and all that and say, okay, well, I guess God's going to work it all out. You know, I'm not going to go evangelize anybody because he's going to save who he's going to save. It's not up to me. Well, you're right. It's not up to you. But that's a disobedient heart right there because God has called us to go to all the nations to preach the gospel. Let him work out who's chosen, who's not, all that. We're just to be obedient. That's what we're called to do. So we're to proclaim the word of God. We're also, we see here the privileges of God, the good news of the gospel in verse 7. He starts right off in verse 7. He says, to all those in Rome who are beloved or loved by God. Isn't it wonderful to know that our God, the God that created everything around us, He loves us? He he doesn't have a grudge. He's not up there with a big stick ready to hit you as soon as you step out of line. That's not the God we serve. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says there, God who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us and I love this part even when we were dead in sins has made us alive together in Christ do you know that God loved you so much he loved you even when you were dead in sin if you've ever been around a dead body but I've been around quite a few. And sometimes I've been around a dead body a little longer than I'd like to be. Several hours waiting for the coroner to come and pick up the deceased or the mortuary. And the longer I stay there around those dead bodies, you begin to smell. <laughs> the decay of a dead body. There's times sometimes where I can't even, (laughs) can't even stay in the house. I'll say something like, you know, I got to go outside and wait for the corner. I'll be back. (laughs) Because the people dealing with the loss are, that's just kind of going right over them. They're not, they're not connecting it. You try to open up some windows. You try to relieve them of this decaying body. See, God loved us when we were dead. We were dead in sin, it says. There's nothing a dead body can do to make itself stop from stinking. Can't clean itself up. It can't you know, light a little candle and say, here, this will help out. You know, I know I'm stinking up here. I'm dead. You can't do that. Dead body can't do anything. 
That's why 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. He's given us that we should be called the children of God. Because God loved us when we were yet sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin. That, that verse there in John, 1 John, where it says, Behold what manner of love. That, that idea, the phrase there, what manner of love. It, it comes from a, a, a Greek word, and it really means to something foreign. Like, where did this love come from? This is a love we've never seen before. It's kind of like it's otherworldly. God's love for mankind is so different from any other kind of love, beloved, that it's, it's from another planet. It's not the kind of love you share with your wife or your kids. It's, it's far above that. God's love for mankind is different from any other kind of love we've ever experienced. That's why Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. And you know what the good news is about this love? Once you're connected to it, Romans 8 tells us that what shall separate us from this love? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nothing. Nothing at all can separate you from the love of Christ. I mean, sometimes we think, well, you know, I don't know if Paul, you know, is dealing with what I'm dealing with. Uh, maybe, maybe if he was dealing with what I'm dealing with in my life, he, he wouldn't have written these words. No. He says there, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says. He doesn't say, well, maybe it'll work out. Possibly, no, he says, you know what? In this I am sure, without a doubt, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. That helps me sleep at night. I'm glad it's not left up to me to keep me saved every day. I mean, some of these folks that have the idea that somehow they can lose their salvation one day, I mean, what a horrible religion. What a horrible belief. How could you ever rest in the peace and assurance of God's promises if you thought for a second that somehow the only way you're going to get to heaven if you're good enough to get there? And that any moment God could step into the picture and say, oh, sorry, you blew it, pal, you're going to hell. We're called, we're beloved of God, we're called of God, it says, called. That's an effectual call. See, there's a, there's a, a general call in the Bible, and there's also an effectual call. 
specific call. The general call basically is in places like Isaiah 45, 22, where it says, Be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. Does that mean that everybody's going to be saved? No. That's a general call to salvation. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, the Lord says, Isaiah declared, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Turn, you turn from your evil ways. Even Jesus in the New Testament used a general call. In verse, or chapter 11, verse 28 of Matthew, he says, Come unto me, all ye who are, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. John 7 says, If any man thirst, let him come to me, Jesus said, and drink. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's all a general call. That's all the gospel going out generally to the world's population. But there's also an effectual call, a specific call. Paul's not simply giving a general call to receive the gospel in verse 7. He has in mind an effectual call, a call to redemption that can only come from the sovereign will of God. I mean, when you stop and think about it, the word called in the Bible, it's really another word for the, the, the word elect. Ephesians 1.4 says, He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. I mean, that's over and over and over on every page of Scripture. It's important that we understand that anyone who believes as one who has been sovereignly called and predestined by God. From man's point of view, you know what? What do we do? We come to Christ as an act of our will. But from God's perspective, he called us to himself before the world even began. Now, don't think you're going to put those two together and, and total makes sense. You're not, because God's ways are not our ways. His ways are far above us. We can't even comprehend the things of God. So he says, we're beloved of God. We're also called of God. Look at the third thing here in verse 7. He says, we're called saints of God. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. I don't know about you, but that's, that's good news. You know, the Catholic Church comes up with certain criteria you have to meet to be a saint. God doesn't do that. He says, you know what? The only criteria that you have to be the saint, be a saint is you come to Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Called to be saints. That word saint, hagias, holy one. Because we're beloved of God, because we're called to salvation believers have been set apart from everybody else in God's perspective. Set apart from the world, set apart from sin in obedience to God. When you look in the Old Testament, that word holy, certain things in the Old Testament were, were said to be set apart, were said to be holy. One was the holy of holies, right? We know that in Exodus. It was set apart. Only the priest could go in there. The tithe in Leviticus 27 is called set apart. It's holy. 
the priests, Leviticus 21, were holy. They were set apart for specific tasks. Exodus 19 says the whole nation of Israel was set apart, was holy. But the New Testament, things change up a little bit. It doesn't describe the Old Testament concepts of being holy anymore. How do you know? Well, the holy of holies doesn't even exist today. Because when Christ died, what happened? The veil was torn. It was opened. The temple has been destroyed. The tithe does not apply anymore because Christians are not under a theocracy. We did a study on this before. But if you're interested in understanding that, you can figure that out. Find that, that tape or whatever. The priests aren't needed anymore because there's a priesthood of believers. We have a high priest, Christ, who sacrificed once for all. See, Christians are holy. They're set apart because the new temple of God is where? In our hearts. It's in our hearts. That's why even the the text that Bob read this morning, the idea that our, our lives should be holy, they should be set apart. We're set apart from our sins onto God. We're saints. I don't know if we should go around calling each other saint. That would be a little egotistical, but we are. Maybe that would help us understand our position in Christ if we referred to each other to saint. Hey, Saint Ken, that'd be interesting. And then the last thing here, blessed by God. They're blessed by God. says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's basically a, a benediction. That's Paul saying, man, amen and amen. The only people who could ever receive this benediction were people who were beloved, called, and made holy by God. Believers are the only ones who will receive and can receive His grace and experience his peace. You say, why did God do all this? Why why does all this play out this way? It's all found there in verse 5. The end of verse 5, middle there, he says, for the sake of what? His name. What's the, the purpose of the gospel? Why did God write the story the way he did? It's, God, it's all about God's glory, beloved. That word, those words there, for his name, simply means it's for the, the purpose the good news was given is that everything should focus on God's glory, not our own. That's why when you start messing with the message of the gospel and you make it a man-centered gospel, well, that messes with God's glory. Or you mess with the gospel and you say, okay, well, you can get salvation, but then God can't keep you saved. Who does that affect? That affects God's glory. The primary purpose of the gospel is God's glory. 3 John 7 says, For his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. For his name's sake. That's why Paul could write in Philippians chapter 2 that God has highly exalted Christ and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in the heaven and the earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Why do you want to do this, Paul? 
at the end of that verse, verse 11, he says, to the glory of God the Father. Do you ever say, do you ever ask the question, why did God save me? You can honestly say and authoritatively say, based on what Scripture tells you, God saved me for his glory, not my own. That's why it's so important that we get that right. If we understand that this isn't about our glory down here, this is just a a vapor, this is just a a, a time here on earth where we're to call other men and women and children to come follow Christ for his glory. Not to build a name for yourself or a big building or a big ministry. That's, that's, That's not what that's about. If that happens, praise the Lord. But I think we've gotten a little off the mark and we've, we've looked at the end of everything and said, well, unless it's, it's this big or this whatever, then somehow it doesn't really count. That's not true. God is interested in things that will glorify him, not others. And the second reason of the gospel there is clearly man's salvation. God is glorified when someone believes his gospel. He's glorified when men, women, children love his son. He's glorified when they understand and and they they diagnose their own sinfulness and their wretched heart and they realize there's no way out and I have to come to God for forgiveness. We exist, beloved, for the glory of God. Salvation is just a benefit. Salvation provides grace and service should be proclaimed by us to a lost and dying world that they too can come and hear the glorious gospel of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would help us understand these verses that we've read this morning. Lord, help us understand our role in this. Lord, maybe we're here this morning and we're trying to put all this together. Maybe it it hasn't really added up yet. Father, I pray that you will equip those to to really come to you and ask you for wisdom. The Bible says if we lack wisdom, let us ask of God who gives freely. Lord, you will show us our need. You'll give us the faith to believe. You'll show us our need of a Savior if we simply ask you. For us believers, I pray that we wouldn't miss out on the fact that We're here today not just to come here and sing some songs and hear somebody speak a message, fellowship and eat some food and go home. No, we're we're called to come together to equip each other, to fellowship one with another. Iron sharpens iron as we gather together that we invest in the lives of those that we're, we're meeting with. That's the purpose we're coming together for your glory. That when we leave this place, we could be better equipped to reach out to a lost and dying world through our testimony and through the gospel that we can share with them and see them come to Christ. Father, we ask that you would move and work through your people here on the peninsula. That we would see many come to know you. That, Lord, you would miraculously save those yet to be saved. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.